This episode is sponsored by Newbie Remote Conf. Newbie Remote Conf is a two-day completely virtual conference hosted by none other than Charles Max Wood. If travel expenses are an issue or you just can't afford to be away from home for two days, then join us. It's virtual. This conference is focused on people who are new to programming who want to learn what the pros know or just get a leg up in getting a job and getting into the programming community. We'll have speakers from all over the programming community to help you stay current and a Slack room where you can connect with speakers and other attendees in real time. We'll also have a live roundtable video chat for attendees and speakers, plus we'll provide the talk recordings to you within days of the conference. Early bird tickets are available for $150 until May 12th, and the call for proposals is open until April 28th. So come join us at NewbieRemoteConf.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode number 254 of The Freelancer Show. On today's panel, we have Curtis McHale. Hello. And Philip Morgan. Howdy. And Jonathan Stark. Hello. And I'm Ruben Lerner, and we are going to be speaking this week about fairness in pricing. Jonathan, why don't you tell us about fairness in pricing or lack thereof? Yeah, this is a great topic. The it's it's an emotional and exciting topic, which I think is a great topic for a podcast. And it stems from an email that I sent out to my list last week or so. I, I just simply sent out a quick question and I asked people to let me know what they thought. What was their answer to this question? So I th- it might be fun to just sort of ask you guys the question, kind of go around the room and get people's feel for their answer. And then I can talk about uh, the implications of the various types of answers, because I think there's a wide range. I would, I would be kind of surprised if, if the four of us didn't represent at least some range of, of the spectrum. Sound good? Okay. Cool. All right. So here's the question. Do you think it's fair for someone to charge you more for a product than they charge other people? Can I get a clarification? When, when you say product, do you really mean like a, a standardized product or... I picked those words very specifically okay. knowing that people were going to parse the hell out of them. So I, I specifically used the word product and I specifically used the word fair. So try to answer as if it was an email and you didn't have the opportunity to ask follow-up <laughs> questions. We'll get into it though. Right. We'll definitely get into it. So, so ask the question again just so I can not Do you think parse. It's, sorry. Do you think it's fair for someone to charge you more for a product than they charge other people? Yes, but I'll be annoyed when that happens. <laughs> but that so that's different than fair. So you think that it's it's fair. It's fair but annoying. So why what is annoying about it if it's not fair? What what is violated? Well, so like I always want to feel like I managed to get a good deal. And by a good deal, I would prefer to think that I'm not paying more than others. So I don't think it's unfair to charge me, you know, for instance, there's this, there's this high speed highway in, uh, in Israel that goes to Tel Aviv and you pay according to the congestion. So like if someone before me goes in and pays something and then they sort of tick it up so that it's going to, I'm going to have to pay more. I'm annoyed because if I just got there 30 seconds earlier, then I could have paid the lower price, but it's fair in that, well, there's more congestion. So yeah, I guess I should pay more. So this is really, this is one of the things that I think is interesting about the word fair is that I don't indicate fair to whom. So you could interpret it as it's, you could interpret as, do you think it's fair for a seller to do this versus do you think it's um, fair to you for the, for pricing inconsistencies or price segmentation to be going on? Or I even asked a follow-up question in a later day, do you think it's fair for someone to charge you less for a product than they charge other people to try and get at the fairness, the sort of global notion of fairness? So like globally, do you think it's fair in general as a practice to sell a can of peas or some other relatively static product to different people for different amounts? So I was trying to, I was trying to get at the distinction between People who just had their nose out of joint and they were just sort of like, that's unfair. I got charged more than someone else versus it's just globally unfair for people to set different prices for the same thing. Yeah, so, so I reject that. I, re- I reject that out of hand. You think it's totally fair for people to just set their prices however they want? 
it is fair, but I'm always going to hope that the, that it's not only fair to the seller to be able to charge different prices, but it will be advantageous to me in some way, and I'll be able to uh, you know benefit from that disparity. Mm. So now here's another thing that your question brings up, which is super interesting, which is that you use the the, the thing that you use to calculate your reference number is what other people are paying instead of the value you got out of the thing. So there's, so people can't really, people are really bad at absolute value. They're really bad at saying, you know, is, is thing worth X? It's like, I don't know, compared to what, mm-hmm. you know, but you could, you could say, well, compared to what other people are paying for it or what the market will bear or the going rate terms like these and feel like you got a good deal because you paid maybe a little bit less than other people or the same as other people. But if you've got no ROI out of the thing, it's not a good deal. Like if you've right. lost money on the purchase, it doesn't really, I mean, in my opinion, I'm on, I'm on the far end of the scale on one end of the scale. And, and it's the end where I don't care how much other, it doesn't, it's utterly irrelevant to me how much somebody else paid for a thing. I don't even think about it. it, it it's, and it's, I've always been like that. It's, I've just, it's just never crossed really? my mind. Yeah, it's never crossed my so mind. So like you go into a store and buy whatever, a set of headphones and then you find out that you missed the sale by a day. Like that's Yeah, I don't I will never find care. that out. There's no way for me to find that out cuz I would never look. I don't care. Yeah, I'm just that it's just my personality. I've never been like that. Cuz I certainly I look would, like okay. I just bought a $500 you know, GPS watch and I looked a couple weeks. I looked at the Amazon price tracker and I was like, oh, if I bought it two weeks ago, it would be cheaper, right? Now, I still bought on value, but it was like $100 cheaper a week before. Um, and like a month later, it's been $100 cheaper again. So I don't feel bad about that, which is funny, but I like I still understand what you're getting at. And there's times when I do feel bad, like I think, oh, like my value has suddenly decreased because someone else paid less, right? Yeah, or because I got Because I had to pay more. But I, I under, like intellectually, I understand. I don't feel bad about the watch, but I still, when you first asked the question, I was looking at my mic and I thought, hmm, I just found out that I paid way more than someone else because of some arbitrary reason. I would feel annoyed and angry and like I, my value was suddenly less, even though I bought it, looked at the value and said that is valuable to me at, you know, a hundred bucks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, and I you think know. that's, that's the more common feeling. I think people, I think it's pretty common to hear people. Maybe it's just those people are louder. Because you do hear a lot of complaints about that sort of thing. And you see companies doing things like price matching because they know that people go go crazy about shopping for the lowest price for a particular thing. So well, I, I mean, think that's I, pretty normal. I, I, I just recently, I guess it was like a week ago, maybe two weeks ago, I was in the convenience store near our house. And they had a sale on four bottles of wine for 100 shekels, which is like $25. And it was like pretty good wine. I was like, oh, this is actually like a pretty good deal. So I bought four bottles. And I was very smug and happy with myself. Less than a week later, I go to the like spice store downstairs from them, like literally downstairs from them, the same brand of wine for five bottles for 100 shekels. And like, it doesn't mean the price I paid the previous week was bad, but I'm like, oh, if only I had known, right? <laughs> and so I don't think it was unfair to have the same product at different prices, and regardless of different stores, like even if we're in the same store. But I do feel like, you know, Sort of, sort of, you know, I wish I'd been able to take advantage of this in a smarter way. I wish I'd been all knowing and thus able to, uh, able to price that better. Yeah. Yeah. My reaction to it would be then this, I swear, I swear this is a true reaction that would happen to me. I'd be like, oh, sweet. Next time I'm going to buy it here. <laughs> I would, yeah. it would not, I would be like, I will say that if I bought the, the first, you know, I think you said four bottles for a hundred shekels and it was horrible. Then I would have been like, then I would have been like, that was a, that was not fair. Did not, I, I don't think fair is the right word. I wouldn't use the word fair because I don't think it actually, I don't think the word fair can be applied to pricing it at all. But, uh, I would be like, I got ripped off and perhaps return the bottle of wine or perhaps never go there again or something like that. It would be some, I would have some punitive action. That I would you take. see it as ROI and value, not like good price, bad price versus other good price, bad price. I just do not compare prices. I don't do it. And I think like what I was saying, like people mix up and even myself sometimes fairness and value, right? 
So I pay more at the local outdoor gear store because I'd like to support local, knowing full well I could buy it at another large retailer and pay less. But I buy local because I see value in supporting a local business. Right? No, sure. that's a sliding scale, right? On a $20 item, if it's 22 bucks, sure. You know, if it was suddenly 50 bucks, I'd have to say no, because then the value isn't there for it. Right, because the, the value that you're paying for is the feel-good feeling. Yeah, and the just, feel like, good feeling just like is not the watch. Worth 50 bucks. Right? <laughs> right. I looked at it, and it was a $500 watch, and I looked at it from then, it was 700 bucks, and I said, hey, it's 700 bucks. And they're like, ah, I'm sorry, that's the price we paid. And I was like, I just can't buy that. And they said, I know. <laughs> so, <laughs> right? It wasn't yeah. worth two hundred. You know, was it worth fifty bucks? Sure, if it was five fifty, I would have paid it. Not like not even question, but mm-hmm. two hundred was not worth it. Right, right. So, well, Philip, do you have a do you have a feeling on this? You're, a, you know, you're an aficionado of high end audio gear. <laughs> I've been thinking about this ever since you uh, started your email series on this subject. I think that I have two categories of, or t- like two types of decision making when it comes to price. There's like, I, I realize I'm always kind of, uh, there, there's like this idea that money's not like, uh, for me, uh, infinitely available, right? Like there's, I mean, I hate, I hate, sometimes I hate that mindset cause I think it holds me back, but basically that, you know, there's X amount of money for X period of time and I'm making decisions about how to use that. And there's the sort of stuff that falls into like the no brainer category. Like I, I'm more like you, Jonathan in like, let's say I need to buy some piece of software and the value to me seems more than the price. Then I just, I don't think about it. I don't compare. I don't even anymore, you know, go to, go to those coupon sites to see if there's like a 20% off coupon code or whatever. Right. I'm just like, let's, let's get this done and move on and not think about this anymore. But then there's a, some threshold and it just depends on the thing and the amount and it depends on a lot of stuff. And when it's over that threshold, I really do scrutinize it and kind of become a little more like Reuven where I'm like, there's no way I'm going to overpay for this thing. Well, what, okay. But how are you calculating overpay? That's the critical thing. Well, there's this idea, which is probably a fantasy that, I mean, with, with stuff like camel, camel, camel and price trackers and the internet, you, there's a feeling, I don't know if this is really true or not, but there's a feeling like I can understand what the lowest price that this sometimes gets sold for is. I can figure that out. And mm-hmm. that, and so anything above that might be in the, in the realm of overpaying. Anyway, those are kind of the two modes that I see myself operating in. Mm. Yeah, I don't want it to come across like I uh, like I just go spend money willy nilly on anything. That's not that. It's that I I don't compare the price that I that is presented to me against what other people might have paid for the same thing. I compare it against how much value I'm going to get out of the thing. Right, and, that and va- the value depends so much on the situation, doesn't it? In a sure. Way. So like. So like if, um, you know, a, a thing that I would historically spend virtually no money on, like buy the cheapest one would be something like a screwdriver because it's, you know, like a single use thing. Like I'm not, I'm not handy. I try to avoid ever touching a screwdriver of any kind. So if there's some reason I need one, it's for some horrible project that I got roped into doing. And I just, you know, we don't have a Phillips head screwdriver. So I just, you know, we're at Home Depot and I just get the cheapest one on the wall because I'm going to use it once and it's going to break and that'll be fine. So there's just no value in it to me to spend 25 bucks on the best screwdriver they have because I I just don't care. But I'm not going to shop around at like 10 stores to find the cheapest screwdriver. I'm just going to find one that's cheap enough for me. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Other end of this. That also brings in uh, Maximizer and Satisfizer too, right? Mm -hmm. You guys familiar with those terms? You just made that up, didn't you? (laughs) No, I didn't. It's in Grit, I think. So like a Maximizer has to find the absolute best price no matter what. So if you buy a pair of jeans and say, this is awesome, then they... Then, then they see a cheaper pair of jeans. They literally, the, the value of the purchase goes down. They feel like they totally got ripped off. Whereas the satisfier is like, what he just said, this is cheap enough for me. I'm good. Doesn't think about it again. Mm. I've never heard those terms before, but that was the response I got from the list. 
which there is a there's a, a roughly equal number of people who are, are in those two camps. So the, the reason why, why does this matter, freelancers? This matters because you set prices for stuff and you need to sell to people like people from, well, you don't have to sell to people in both camps, but you should be aware that those two camps exist. And I submit to you that one of those camps is much better clients than the other camp, but we could debate. No, which one do you think is better? Uh, The ones who are not shopping for the cheapest price. They're looking for the one that has so in the ones that are value shoppers, which I would call, yeah. the, I guess, the satisfizers. Satisfizer, yep. Yeah. So the ones that are shopping for the best value are the ones you're looking for, not the ones who are going to. Cause I think the other ones create the race to zero. Yeah, absolutely. So when so, people uh, are criticizing you, because everyone, if you if you offer the exact same price for. Uh, let's, let's stick with products because it's less emotional. It's easier to talk about. If you, you know, I have an ebook, I sell the ebook. If, if I just sell that ebook for 49 bucks, full stop, I don't care if you want an educational discount. I don't care if you want a coupon. I don't care if you want to order a hundred of them. It's 49 bucks period. A lot of people would say that's fair because that's the price of the thing. That is like an attribute of the product. It is priced at $49. It's simple, it's clean, it's easy to understand. There could not possibly be anything unfair about that to a certain group of people. To another group of people, they will think that's that's very unfair to people who maybe have less purchasing power, you know, like the ones that I just list, the things that I just listed out. So educational discount, discounts, senior citizens discounts, bulk purchase discounts. It seems totally unfair to a certain group of people that I wouldn't offer those sorts of things. So it's I feel like it's sort of... You're going to tick somebody off no matter how you decide to do it. So just pick one to sell to and, and go for it and don't sort of acquiesce to the other group because trying to acquiesce, acquiesce to both groups probably end up putting you in a, an uncomfortable, you know, in a, in an unwinnable situation where you're kind of racing to zero, but you don't have the flexibility to do the, the pricing that you want to do. Does it seem like a fair observation? Or do people think that you could successfully sell to both groups? I think you can sell to both groups, but it's going to be hard. Well, first of all, like, I I think much of your advice, Jonathan, like in general, and especially here, but in general is try to find uh, the satisfices or try to try to find the people who are not going to search infinitely long for the cheapest right? Who, who are interested in maximum ROI and you can work with both kinds of clients. It'll feel more satisfying to work with this kind of client, but it's also, um, challenging for many people to get to the point where they have the luxury of choosing only those clients that work in this way or choose price in this way. Um, and I'll go a little further, I'll I'll go a little further than that and say, I think there's a large cultural aspect here as well. Um, I mean, I know in Israel, like people often say the national religion in Israel is not to be considered a sucker, right? Like, and basically like you get on a plane and people, I mean, they don't do it so much anymore, but for years they would compare prices with the people sitting next to them and like then feel either satisfied or dissatisfied that they got a cheaper price and people would compare prices on everything. And so there's definitely a sense of you don't want to be sort of shown as having paid more than you should have. And I think here in China, like I, I've seen similar tendencies. And so if you have an entire like culture where the business is running that way, um, it's going to be hard to find, not impossible, hard to find the people who are willing to sort of hear the, the value pricing argument or who are not going to constantly say, but so-and-so is cheaper. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the, the solution there, I, I think Philip can jump in on this, but the solution there is to create a monopoly of you know, a market of one, which is you basically. So you yeah. need to differentiate yourself so strongly that there's nothing to compare you to. It's just totally apples and oranges and you're the only apple, but that's hard too. That's hard, but that's, that's, a, that's a good hedge against that sort of issue. I totally agree. Mm-hmm. And particularly with products, pricing is, is a big part of the overall positioning of the product. So it's not really like a separate attribute that you can just 
Like, like if, if all of a sudden BMWs cost uh, $20,000 instead of whatever they cost, it's not like the, the market that BMW sells to now would be happy about that. I don't think they would be, in fact. I think they would be like, well, WTF, my status symbol is no longer a status symbol. Or, you know, like even if they couldn't articulate it over, over the, a decade or two, BMW would be a very different brand and it would not be a high-end brand. So mm-hmm. there's, you know, when, when you're talking about like uh, modulating price for different markets, I think, what, what am I trying to say? It, it's, I mean, the, the traditional thing is you, you have a sort of low-end and a high-end brand if you want to capture more of the market by modulating price. I know that mm-hmm. gets away from the fairness question, but maybe that's part of, I mean, I don't think that's the biggest reason why separate brands are, are uh, spun up where it's essentially the same product just packaged and marketed differently. I yeah, think it's like be- Toyota Lexus. Yeah. I mean, there's the differentiation there is somewhere between superficial and, and like, um, you know, like a foundational difference, but that, that's a great example. It's, um, I mean, you know, here in, uh, the neighboring town, Santa Rosa, where all the car dealerships are, uh, those two dealerships are, you know, like a thousand feet apart. <laughs> They're on the same road there, but in a, in a bigger town, they would be in different parts of town, right. In order to connect more closely with their customers. Mm. Anyway, I think my overall point is it's more complicated than just changing the price. Like uh, a friend of mine who sells an ebook and I have had this ongoing conversation about like, is it worth, worth it for him to invest the time? He, he sells an ebook that appeals to software developers and in particular testers, right? So mm. he has a ton of customers in India, which has much less purchasing power than the person in, in an equivalent job role here in the States or in Western Europe or whatever. So like this is a real question. Does he find some way to expose a different price, a lower price to the, the India market, like based on an IP address lookup or something like that? And <laughs> he hasn't come to a conclusion yet, but it's like a real question as to would, would he sell more books doing that? It's not really for him a question of fairness uh, what he would do is just try to set the price so it's this equivalent amount of uh, money when being sold to somebody in India versus a sale to someone here in the U.S. Right, but it's not a question of fairness. It, no, I, in, so maybe I just muddied, muddied the waters there. But uh, th- this is how I see that question come up is in in a context like that. Mm. Yeah, I mean, personally... And it doesn't matter that I think this because people disagree with me and I have to sell to those people and I'm not going to have the opportunity to change their mind about it by talking to them first. But personally, I don't think the word fair even makes sense in the context of pricing. It's like saying, what color is Tuesday? It's like, is this price fair? It's like, what does that even mean compared to what, you know, fair, fair is like, you know, you know, barring things like extortion and the legal definition of, you know, basically barring breaking the laws, there are no rules in a free market really about, uh, about, about pricing. There are some norms that certain groups of people feel should be the rules or are acceptable behavior or social mores around pricing, but there are no rules. And so it's hard, it's hard for something to run afoul when there are not that many rules. So assuming that you're staying within legal bounds, I think it's impossible. It's strong, but I think it's impossible to call a price unfair. It might be a good price for you or a bad price for you, or it might be profitable or unprofitable, but fair, I don't even think is, is an appropriate word to use to describe a price. Yeah. Like, I mean, there's so many examples of anything like my, the book I sell, the value depends on what somebody does with it. Like I can't know that in advance of the sale. I don't know if someone's going to park it on their hard drive and never read it or if it's going to change their business and they're going to, you know, start making an extra $100,000 a year because of that book. Both are possible. And neither do they. Neither do they, (laughs) exactly. I mean, same thing with a lot of things, exercise equipment. You know, who knows if it's going to just sit in your basement after being used for two weeks or if it's going to change your life. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, so much of the value of something comes from the context in which it's used or applied. 
So speaking of value, I'm always banging on about value pricing, which was the, the reason why I kind of initiated this question on the list. And if people, you know, people listening are thinking, yeah, you know, I fall into this camp or I fall into that camp about or disagree with it. No, there are such things as a fair or an unfair price or they, they do get, you know, ticked off when they find out the person sitting next to them on the plane paid less. Like that's I'm not saying I'm not discounting that. I'm saying I don't feel that way but it's real. So the, the, the reason why that is, I think, important to think about and be self-conscious or have a self-awareness about with you, dear listener, is if you're thinking about doing value pricing, I, I think you will find it very difficult to do value pricing well if you believe that there's fairness in pricing. Those two things don't really map to each other. And I have zero scientific evidence about this, but a, a lot of anecdotal evidence that is starting to look like a pattern where people in my coaching program who, who are very price conscious shoppers. So the, the, what are they called? Maximizers or max maxillary Pfizer's <laughs> maximizers, maximizers. Oh, I thought it was weirder than that. Oh, satisfizers. That's the weird one. Okay. So satisficers. Yes. It's the weird one. Yeah. Okay. So maximizers would, again, not discounting that mentality. It's real and people do it. It's just not me, but those people are going to have a, appear. There appears to be a correlation between people who think that way about pricing and their ability to value price because they feel like they're being unfair because there are cheaper options. So it's very difficult for a person who thinks that way to you know, charge a rate that is going to effectively amount to them making a thousand or $2,000 an hour. It's tough for them to justify it in their own minds. And therefore it's tough, tough to justify it to the customer. So if you're nodding along with this, you know, Oh, that's why I have such a hard time believing that value pricing is actually something that works or something that might be good for my business might be better to think about doing productized services. Like we've talked about in the past where you sort of say, Hey, I do this thing. This is the price. Take it or leave it. And, you know, maybe you offer discounts sometimes, or maybe you have educational discounts or for a training or whatever it is you offer, but it might be a better fit for your personality to think about posting the prices more like a menu where it's out in the open and there's not as much of a negotiation. And I, I just think it might be a, a better uh, route to success for people. So that's why I thought it'd be interesting to talk about. Well, I mean, I, I, look, I, um, I've been trying to, edge up my course prices over the last year. And um, so I've been sort of testing the waters with some of my established clients and not testing the waters with my new clients. By that I mean, my old clients, every so often, like I guess like once a year, maybe every eight months or so, I'll say, so I'm starting to raise my prices on other clients. I'd like to raise them on you. And I, I know that they have just sort of different ways of working. Like one, one company in particular has sort of an internal marketplace. And so the people in charge can tell me I, if I raise the price by X, you know, what will happen to the number of people who take the course? And they said, look, you could raise it, but the number of courses that will actually open will drop because we've seen people just don't go over to that price. All right, so I'm willing to keep it lower. But if a new company calls me up, I've started giving them like much higher quotes and they've balked a little bit. But they, I mean, one company said, well, we're not going to pay that much for a course. And I said, okay. <laughs> and I think they were so, <laughs> I said, okay, I'll, I'll find someone else to fill that time. And I think they were so shocked that I said that. They called me back and said, okay, we'll do it at that price. Now, is it unfair that I'm charging a new client for one course much more than I'm charging a company that has probably 10 times as much in revenue, 100 times as much in revenue as they do and can afford more? I don't know. Like, <laughs> I know, say I, absolutely I gotta, not. Unfair is the wrong word, in my okay. humble opinion. So, so, so it's not unfair, but it would be unfair if you were holding a gun to their head, or you were the mm. only option, and it was an absolute emergency, and it was you had them over a barrel. That's the phrase you. You got me over a barrel, and you're gonna. <laughs> this is a shakedown. You know, that's people. People go to those sorts of phrases pretty quickly. But they are not act, they are not literal, they are figurative. And it's not actually a shakedown. I don't actually have you over a barrel. You could, there are a hundred other options. If you're looking for someone cheaper, I'll give you the names. Right. So it's right. not, it, it's not, it cannot, in my mind, in my heart of hearts, 
<laughs> there's no rational argument for for anyone to call that unfair. Moreover, it's like the thing is, it's also a complicated calculation because in my case, for example, I could just make all of my prices the same, but then I'm sort of I'm I'm not maximizing my income, mm-hmm. and by keeping them different, I'm then taking into consideration not just how much am I going to get on this course, but how many additional courses will I get in the future, and how likely are they to work with me in the future, all of which enter into that calculus. Mm-hmm. So I'm. So, so it's only fair, like, and I guess this is sort of the converse of what you said before. It's only fair that if I'm willing to do this to my clients and charge them different amounts, that I shouldn't possibly get upset when I find that other people are paying different amounts for things that I buy. Well, if if people were never hypocritical, then that would be the case. But <laughs> that I do I do think that it is a hypocritical uh, stance to take that that you believe that you should be able to charge whatever you want to whoever you want. Uh, but you know, you, but as a buyer, you're allowed to get angry about, I mean, hypocritical is strong because it, it doesn't really matter because you just, you don't have to pay the higher price. You can do whatever you want. I just think it's going to be, it's really hard for people who take that stance of wanting the cheapest price for most things rather than the best ROI and and then trying to turn around and make sales using an approach that would not work on them. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a, a sales thing in the sales industry. Uh, there's a thing called shopping with your own wallet, which is uh, a, actually I think a pretty bad way of describing the scenario. But it's a scenario that's easy to imagine, which is that you know you're a salesperson, you are making ten bucks an hour, you don't have a lot of disposable income, but you're selling ten thousand dollar watches, or you know you're selling three hundred and fifty dollar headphones, and people are coming in who are maybe more well healed than you, let's say, and you're talking them out of stuff that you wouldn't pay for because you don't think that the, uh, that the price differential is worth it because to you it isn't. So it screws up your whole sales approach. And it's a very common thing where people talk, you know, Oh, you don't want that phone. You don't want to get that phone. Just get this Android phone. It's free with contract. You can just top up your minutes at, at any T-Mobile store you know, someone says that to me and I walk out of the store. Like, first of all, I'm not buying the cheapest phone. Second of all, I'm not stopping and topping up my minutes in the T-Mobile store. Like the person is selling, the person is selling to themselves instead of selling to me. So I, I think that's a risk if you, you know, dear listener, if you are always a price shopper and you're going to try to sell to people who are not price shoppers, it makes it, I think, a lot more difficult. It's harder to empathize with what's going on in their heads. In, in my opinion, I've certainly seen that in my students where they just re- rebel people who are price shoppers, you know, for things that they shouldn't even be thinking about, you know, like inconsequential in shopping around for something that's utterly inconsequential, like someone who makes $200 an hour spending two days researching something that costs $10. It makes no sense. So, you know, but that's just, you know, it's like you said with the plane, it's like a game. It's like the national pastime to not be a sucker. So, you know, when they, when I try to say, you know, no, you got to, you should be charging these people based on the value to them and it should be 50 grand for the weekend. And they're like, no, how could I, that's only, you know, 16 hours. That's, it can't possibly, somebody will undercut me, blah, blah, blah. I think something that, uh, I know cause I've read about the maximizers and satisficers is that you usually have areas that you're, that you fall into that in, right? Like I'll look at some outdoor gear and spend a bunch of time. I have five ultra running packs to run through the mountains and I'm looking all over for it. Most people would look, many people would look at that and maybe some of you and say, well, this one looks good and be okay with it at the value. But I will dig deep into, you know, five or six of these and try them on and really dig into them before I spend a couple hundred dollars on them. And I'm not, so in other areas, I won't, I won't even care. I'll just make the purchase because it's valuable and be done. I don't know if I, I do that too, but I think it's two different things. So I'll do that with guitars. Like I'm not buying a guitar mm. that I'm not in love with. Yeah. But I don't shop around. So it's a different, I don't shop around for price. I'll shop around for the perfect guitar. See what I mean? So because I have an in-depth, uh, you know, it's, I have a music degree. I've been playing guitar for 30 years. I, you know, I, I have a highly refined taste for 
uh, guitars in the way that some people might have for wine or beers or something. So the, the nuances of the thing matter because you've developed that taste, but I still don't shop around for the lowest price necessarily. I mean, if I can afford the thing, which, some, which sometimes I can't. How then would you decide where to make the purchase after doing all that research? I would probably have fallen in love with a particular instrument and there would be no option. Oh, like something handmade? I can either afford it or I can't. Yeah. Okay. Or something vintage where there's just that one and that's your only option for getting that? that Yeah, pretty much. I mean, even 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 a production guitar is like a pair of jeans. They're all different. So if there's a particular one that, yeah. So it's kind of like, uh, I'm not going to say, oh, where's the, where's the, where's the cheapest Fender Strat? Mm -hmm. So I, I don't know, maybe I'm making a distinction without a difference, but uh, it's not that I never shop around for stuff. I just don't consider price that much. And, and I certainly don't, it's not that it, okay, let me say that one more time. I don't compare the price to essentially the same product price that other people paid for the, essentially the same product. I compare it to the value I'm going to get for the thing in my hands. So if it's like, if, if the price is good enough, regardless of whether it's a cheap screwdriver that I could care less about, and I'll probably throw away in 24 hours or $4,000 Paul Reed Smith with a, you know, flame top maple handmade guitar, I'm going to, I'm still not going to shop around on price. I just don't do it. Or maybe like, again, maybe I'm, I don't know if I'm too far down the rabbit hole to even understand that I'm saying the same thing as Curtis, but. I think it's a subtle but important difference. And I think it's a, a worthwhile distinction because that really is the goal of, of narrowing your focus and, and structuring your services in a certain way so that there are no other options. It's like mm-hmm. that one, you know, Martin D whatever <laughs> that you've been, <laughs> yeah. you know, every, every week you go by the store and fondle it. Like that's the only one that is exactly what you want. And there is no mm-hmm. other option. And, and that means that you get to pay the price that's been set for that instrument. That I mean, not that kind of instrument, but that exact one. And uh, so I think it is relevant that you would develop over time, like almost this emotional bond with a particular instance of something where there are alternatives, but there's not, nothing that's exactly like that. I yeah, know. I totally agree. There's a strong relationship there. I, it's not like it's a little bit, I mean, know how they work, but I'm wondering if there's a, a theory that we can abstract out of it that is a direct like, corollary or, you know, sort of a relationship to the, the, the maximizer satisfizer thing that, that there might be sort of a quadrant happening here. That's utterly fascinating to me. I'll share an interesting story from the world of high-end uh, personal audio. There's a company called Hi-Fi Man. They're a Chinese company. And they make uh, a range of products, but they're, I think, most well-known for their headphones. When they started out, they were a, a very, they were positioned as a very solid value option, meaning, you know, people would use terms like, well, he's really compared to much more expensive headphones from other manufacturers. Um, they punch above their weight. You know, people would use phrases like that to describe them. So what that meant is that there was a perception in the marketplace that the price you paid was less than mm, just a sort of overall total package of quality and uh, ability to, you know, performance ability. And, um, and so they were, they were in that category and, and they kind of operated there for years. Uh, just this past, just in the last year, I think really the last six months, they introduced a, a headphone that was, is priced at $6,000. And before that, so there was kind of in the, in the early ages, stages of the company, I don't think they sold anything that was a headphone that cost more than $1,000, $1,100 maybe. And then they kind of introduced a few models that are in the $1,000 to $2,000 price bracket. What was interesting when they introduced this $6,000 headphone was the reaction from the more vocal members of the headphone buying marketplace, it, which was a very negative reaction. And it, it's really interesting to think about that because in light of this discussion about pricing, because there is, I think, a relationship between the price you set for something and, and your, your sort of brand or your perception as like, uh, 
a company that can actually justify that price. Like if every, you know, if every product you've ever <laughs> done before was in the, you know, 200 to $1,000 range, and then all of a sudden you produce this product at $6,000, people ask a lot of questions <laughs> that they don't ask about your other products. And yeah, it's, it's like that $17,000 Apple Watch. It was by far the most expensive product mm -hmm. that Apple had ever sold in a category that they'd never even been in before. Right. Yeah. And I bet that I bet the conversation, the sort of tone of the conversation, it's very critical. It's like almost like who are they to do that? Mm -hmm. Or how in the world is that worth that price? That's ridiculous. Did did Apple end up discontinuing that? I forget. They've certainly minimized it. Uh, it's no longer talked about. So I don't know if they, they certainly never publicly said they were discontinuing it mm -hmm. to my knowledge, but it's, it's not talked about. And now they talk about the support ones. It sounds like it kind of didn't work to either anchor the price of the other options or transform some segment of the market's perception of Apple or whatever, right? right? It, it, it appears to be that way. Yeah. Anyway, I, I don't know really what the point, I just wanted to share that story because it it seems relevant. It, it was certainly interesting to me. I, I, I had the same reaction. I'm like, wait a second, here's a company that's not really, they're known for what you get for the lower price is decent quality, but not the best of anything. And now they're kind of pricing it as if this product is the best of everything. And um, very few people uh, were enthusiastically positive about that, uh, that new price point for them. Sure. Yeah. It's like Apple going up against Rolex. It's like, Oh, we can be Rolex. Right. It's like, mm, maybe, but you better come out swinging pretty hard. And they didn't. I mm. mean, it appear all indications appear that they, that was not successful mm -hmm. even as an anchor. I don't even think it's listed on their site anymore. So mm. it's not even being used as a price anchor. Right. So what does this mean for freelancers though? So we're talking about watches and headphones and, and cars and airplane seats. So it's building your brand as, you know, as an expert at a particular thing for which there's really no real competition, right? I mean, that's, that's the nuts and bolts of it. And then deciding how you're going to price it based on your worldview about fairness and pricing or if such a thing can even exist. Is that kind of, I think that's kind of what we're saying. Right. I mean, look, one of the things that a lot of freelancers struggle with is how do they price what they're doing? And it's so easy to say, okay, I'm going to price, you know, don't listen for a moment, Jonathan. I'm going to price every hour at this. Or I'm going to price every day at this. Or I'm going to price working on a project at this. And every time they see a similar project, they feel almost obligated out of the sense of, hold your ears again, Jonathan, out of the sense of fairness to charge the same thing. Because it wouldn't be nice, fair, acceptable to charge different clients different amounts for roughly the same work. But it turns isn't, out isn't that funny? everyone's doing that. Right? Isn't that funny, right? Because ultimately, the, the end goal that the client wants is different in virtually every case. I mean, it's hard to imagine a scenario where two companies are in the exact same situation. They want you, in particular, to do the exact same thing that's going to have the exact same outcome for them. So the fairness comes from, oh, well, I'll price my hours the same. But the company doesn't want your silly hours. That's not what they're buying, but it, it's, it has this illusion of fairness because you're not monkeying around with your price, but the price that you're not monkeying around with is for a thing that no one wants, but have, they have bought into the collective hallucination that that's how professional services are purchased. And since no one will give them an actual price for the outcome that they want, they don't have a lot of options other than, than hourly assistance, which mm -hmm is is one of the things that you first uh, start to hear when you do start giving prices for things instead of estimates for things. Clients are like, not, they won't even, like it, plenty of times have been like, you're going to give us an actual price? And then, you know, and, and I actually go, come out and say, and there will be no change orders, there will be nothing, this is the price, not a dime more. And they can't believe it. They're just in heaven. And... It's, it's, I mean, that's why I'm on this, I'm sort of on a crusade to rid the earth of hourly billing because it, I think it's so bad for everyone. It's bad for the person doing it and it's bad for the person who's uh, buying it because you haven't priced a thing. You have not priced anything. You sell stuff that you never price. You sell something that you have never set a price for. That's unfair if you ask me. If you're going to find unfairness in pricing, it's, the, it's not pricing but charging people. So, yeah, I mean, honestly, if... I, I want to puncture the notion 
of fairness and I want people to set prices and I want them to set them in a way that they are going to be comfortable supporting and making a case for to the kinds of clients that they're going to sell to. You don't have to be like me or sell to clients that I like to sell to. You can sell to your own kind or my kind. I don't care. But I think it's important to have sort of self-awareness around a, that you're pricing at all in the first place and B the kind of pricing you use how you feel about it and the kinds of buyers that you should try to attract or, uh, or when you do attract ones that aren't a good fit for you, you just say, well, we're not a good fit. I'll send you to someone else. That would be my hope. All right. I think we could go on this topic a lot more. I have a strong feeling about that, but we should probably, we should probably, uh, start to wrap up and maybe get to picks. Does anyone have any other things they want to add on this subject? Okay. Silence. Um, so, Jonathan, why did you start with uh, with picks for today? Sure. A first pick is a book. In, in my case, it was an audio book called Leviathan Wakes, which is the first book in the Expanse series. It's a sci-fi book that takes place something like 500 years in the future. I could be wrong, but something like that. Um, it's just, uh, I won't bore you with the details, but it's just a fabulous book. You can't book. get bored with the details. That's the thing about the book. You, you read it's it there. great. I've read it the whole is. series. They're great. I pre-ordered them as they come out. Oh, They're awesome. I, I just watched the TV series. I haven't read the book, but it was that, very, that was also very good. Yeah, yeah. I, it's right up there with some of my favorite sci-fi books of all time. It is great. And I'm, all, I'm only on the, I've only finished the second book, so no spoilers. <laughs> no, I'm already, I'm already plowing into the third. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think I read them all in like two weeks because they were just so good. I kept going through them and I was like, oh, there's more <laughs> and pre-ordered and waited for like six months. And now I'm waiting for the next one. Mm, so good. Mm-hmm. And my other pick is a podcast that is called uh, Earmuffs for any kids in the room. It is called My Dad Wrote a Porno. Oh, and God. <laughs> it is the, the funniest thing ever. <laughs> So I'll give you the premise. 65-year-old guy, retired salesman, writes an erotic novel in the style of Fifty Shades of Grey, thinking that he's sort of going to you know, make, uh, make a side hustle in his retirement. He's going to make some money on Amazon selling these uh, erotic novels. His son finds out. This is, this is real. Like this happened. A guy did this. His, you know... 25 year old son finds out about it and <laughs> tells his friends and they decided to do a podcast of, of the, the son, one of his friends or and two friends, a guy and a girl where the son reads a chapter and they just comment on it throughout the reading it. And, and the writing is epically bad. It is so hilariously bad that it's just, it's constantly, I'm constantly doubled over laughing so at how hilarious it is. So it's, it's like Mystery Science Theater 3000, but, but For, a book. But about a book, yeah. exactly. <laughs> it is a scream. It is way, way, way not safe for work, though. I mean, it's just constant. I mean, he's reading a, he's reading a porno, basically. But it's so bad. It's so bad that that is such a bad writer that sorry dad that he forgets the names of his own characters at one point (laughs) (laughs) they're like who's donna he's like i think he means bella (laughs) so it's so fabulously bad that it's good anyway (laughs) my dad wrote a porno check it out okay uh how do you even follow that up? Eh? Oh, I've got to follow it up. Great. <laughs> Since we talked about satisficers versus maximizers, I thought I would. My pick today will be the link from Gretchen Rubin for her 2006 article talking about it. If you want to know more. And then she wrote, um, what's the book I've read? I'm sure I actually read the book, but she does the happiness project and she has a podcast with it as well. The happiness project book uh, is great. And I've certainly heard her on podcast a bunch of times uh, and in a few other places I've heard the term as well. So if you want to dig more into that and what it means, then you should go read the article and then look at her material on it. Ultimately, if you want to be the happiest, you should be a satisficer, not a maximizer. Boom. Okay. Philip, what do you got for us? 
I got nothing this week. <laughs> Sorry, uh, folks. $6,000 headphones. <laughs> <laughs> I, I cannot pick those because uh, I have not heard them myself and also uh, have a feeling they may not be worth nearly that much. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, nothing this week. All right. Well, I've got uh, two picks. So, first of all, um, an article that I had looked at just came out recently, which uh, our whole discussion reminded me of, from The Atlantic. The uh, title is How Online Shopping Makes Suckers of Us All. Um, and this is like basically the maximizer approach to things, which is if I, you know, is that, the subhead is, will you pay more for those shoes before 7 p.m.? Would the price tag be different if you lived in the suburbs? Standard prices and simple discounts are giving way to far more exotic strategies designed to extract every last dollar from the consumer. So this is like the extreme maximizer um, approach and the, hey, I am being charged a penny more than my neighbor, thus things are unfair. So um, at the very least, I mean, even if you don't agree with the uh, what they're saying in the article, it's sort of interesting to see how the Internet is setting this up and changing people's perceptions um, and maybe just sort of thinking about it as well. Uh, the other one is um, I, North Korea has been in the news a little bit, and I have this um, occasional interest in North Korea. It's just like a, a, a weird, crazy place. Um, and I, I read a book a few years ago uh, about it, uh, which was really great. And there's this other book by this guy named Victor Cha, who served on the U.S. National Security Council. And it's called The Impossible State, North Korea Past and Future. And it is gripping, perhaps a little too much detail about various meetings among different people in different countries. But he goes into truly astonishing and horrifying detail about what life is like in North Korea and why the world is basically stuck and why things are you know, not as simple as they might seem. Why, why they're more complex than anyone would have known, um, to quote someone. So, <laughs> so de de definitely, uh, if you're interested in that sort of uh, history and politics and figuring out why, why the world is more complex than we might have uh, hoped, uh, definitely, definitely worth looking at. Um, and I might add certain chapters you will not want to read uh, while you are eating lunch or anything else as they'll be going through. Uh, they, they, they describe some of the torture in uh, rather graphic detail. And on that happy note, dear listeners, uh, hope that uh, this, this past hour hasn't been uh, torture for you. Uh, thanks to my fellow panelists. Thanks to all of you for listening. And we will be back next week. See ya. Bye. Ciao. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.